If you could create one powerful change at work, what would it be? Would you change the way oncologists view your role and develop a successful head and neck cancer program for patients before, during, and after their treatment? Maybe you would change the way your clinical director values your services and gets them to approve funding for tools and continuing education the same way they fund PT and OT. Or maybe you would change the way oral care and thickened liquids are managed at your facility and be the reason behind reducing rates of aspiration pneumonia thanks to the protocols you implement. Whatever the change may be, I have good news. You can make it happen in the next six months. You're invited to join the Changemakers Collective, a strategic mentorship program starting this June. I'm looking for medical SLPs who want to make some serious change at work or in their community, the kind of change that has a ripple effect. Throughout the six-month program, you'll develop a tangible goal and receive step-by-step guidance to achieve that goal. Don't have a specific goal in mind yet, but know that something needs to change. Our mentors can help you iron out the details. This includes 18 group mentor calls for advanced ASHA CEUs, templates, a private community, and high-touch support for high-level goals. Go to www.medslpcollective.com forward slash changemakers to learn more. Again, that's www.medslpcollective.com forward slash changemakers. On this episode of the Smell Your Pride podcast, we have Dr. Caitlin McGratton. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Speech-Language Hearing Science at the University of Minnesota with a clinical appointment at Masonic Children's Hospital. She completed doctoral training in health and rehabilitation science at the Medical University of South Carolina and postdoctoral training in neonatal gastroenterology at Nationwide Children's Hospital and pediatric otolaryngology at Medical University of South Carolina. Her research focuses on developing more refined methods for pediatric dysphagia assessment that enable more accurate diagnosis and determination of treatments that will maximize therapeutic effects. This includes elucidating clinical characteristics of how healthy non-dysphagic infants feed, as well as developing new technologies to allow more precise diagnostics. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and founder of the MetaSLP Collective and MetaSLP Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good afternoon, Caitlin. Hi, how are you? Good. Thank you so much for joining me. Of course. My pleasure. All right. So tell the people who you are. I am Caitlin McGrann. I'm assistant professor at University of Minnesota, speech pathologist by training, um, and I work clinically as well as doing research and teaching. Awesome. All right. And what is most of your research and teaching in? I study all aerodigestive physiology and function in infants primarily, also um, some in the older spectrum with spinal muscular atrophy. But the majority of my research, I would say, is focused on um, bottle or breastfed infants that are medically complex. All right. Awesome. 
Okay, so Caitlin's coming back on. She was on, oh gosh, a few months ago, um, but they've had a lot of really interesting and exciting work going on. So Caitlin is back on to talk about it today. So where would you like to start? Um, well, I know when we were last on, I think we were, if I recall correctly, we were talking about how we had this normal cough study going on and we just had finished it and we're presenting it. Um, and so that's now out, which is exciting. That's, um, open access. So anybody should be able to read that and access it now, which is really, I would say like the biggest update since we saw you, um, from what we talked about before. Awesome. All right. And we will make sure we'll stick that link in the show notes if anybody, um, yeah. Okay. Yes. We can make sure that people have access to that. All right. So what's new and exciting? What are you guys been working on now? Oh gosh. Well, we're always working on something new. I think the, um, you know, this summer was kind of like a summer of like tying things up. I love data collection and like scheming analysis and things like that. Writing out the results is probably my least favorite part in theory. Once I start doing it, I'm good. I just have to like force myself to sit down and do it. So I kind of make these bargains with myself that I can't submit a new grant or I can't submit another study that I want to do until I get the results out and published. Yeah. It's funny. Cause I'm, I'm the opposite of you. Like I'm, oh, really? I'm, I'm working on my PhD too now. And like the data collection, I'm like, this is so slow and like painstaking. Like I just want everybody to show up at once and yeah. find all the data, but then I love the writing part. Like I love totally. yeah. and right, 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 right. So that's so funny. Yeah. yeah. I think I just love like the, all the data collection is always clinical. And so I get, I mean, I work clinically, but by no means my full-time clinical. And so I think like the, I love being part of a clinical team. And I think when I collect data, it's always within a clinical context. So I really like that part and being able to like have dynamic conversations with people and see kind of how things play out and see how the different hypotheses I have look like they're working out versus not. So yeah, I just love it. And yeah, writing is good too. It's just different. I try to save that for my like when I'm somewhere warm and I don't want to work, but I need to work. So then I can go to a coffee shop and write. <laughs> Typically we spend most of um, December in Mexico and oh, wow. Minnesota is horrible in the winter. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, we just get out for as long as possible. So I try to treat myself over that time with like, okay, well, you're going to be in a nice place. So you're going to write and get a lot of things out. Yeah. So yes. I love that. So, yeah. So, yeah, I think as far as what we're um, doing now is, I mean, the the manuscripts that have come out, I guess I'll say that is um, an extension of the normal coughing study. So, you know, just kind of as a refresher, if you didn't hear that podcast or haven't read it yet, um, we forgive you. Um, But the main kind of findings from that are that, you know, we found that what we did was we tracked healthy infants and had their parents record how many times that they coughed per feed. And we looked at other variables as well, but that was like one of the big ones is like, is it normal for babies to occasionally cough during a feed? And so our main findings for that is that, yes, in fact, it is normal for healthy infants or it appears to be, I guess I would say. We collected data on about 60 infants and currently reported the first month of data that we have six months worth of data that we're um, analyzing now. And we found that on um, generally speaking, these healthy infants who parents didn't report any issues during that time, they did cough and that was normal. And that on average, they would cough twice during two feeds a day. Um, so I think like that for me, holds a lot of clinical relevance and not to get overly concerned about just seeing a single coughing instance and put it in the context of the bigger picture. 
Um, and then it's just also highlighted the variability. Like some kids never coughed at all. Others were like 85% of the time coughing. And so I think that was really enlightening from that. We then also looked at like how long it took babies to finish feeds and found on average 20 minutes, which is I think in clinical care, like what we typically say to people. I just have never seen a study that carefully looked at it. But then again, like for me as a clinician, like the information is averages are great, but like, I also want to know like the extremes of these patients. And so, you know, some, I think this speaks to like how babies feed in the first month. So some feeds lasted one minute because the parent thought that they were hungry and then they weren't, you know, it's like always the guessing game, like, why is my baby crying? Yeah. <laughs> Let's try feeding them. I don't know. Turns out they're not hungry. So I think like that was really compelling. And then some of the babies feeds were over an hour long. Uh, just because they're having to constantly wake up the baby, you know, like in that first couple of weeks of life, they're just super sleepy. So that was interesting because I think clinically that goes against a lot of the things that we think about in our medically complex kids and not trying to say that we should interpret these cues the same way in a medically complex child as we should in a healthy child. I think you have to take like the risks associated with that, but you know, just thinking about that as a child is transitioning from maybe the NICU home and how much we make of those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And then the last main finding of that kind of cliff notes is that we found actually significantly fewer coughing episodes when babies were breastfed than when they were bottle fed. Now, very small difference between them, but it was clinically significant. So I think this is really interesting because we hear about this, you know, with swallow studies and we say, oh, no thin liquids. And then parents ask about breastfeeding they do better breastfeeding. So I think that was really cool finding as well from that. So, so that said, with that established, we kind of wanted to dive deeper into like, what is this normal? Because again, when I do avails on patients, I'm always asking myself, like, I don't even know, is this normal? Is it not? So what we did is we looked at how quickly babies are drinking milk using the oral feeding scale, which is Chantel Lau's work. And then also a, a standardized metric, um, the EFS, which is just a standardized way of evaluating clinical feeding that many people use in the NICU. And so we want to know, you know, how would these healthy term babies perform if we looked at some of these metrics? Um, so really what we found was interesting is in terms of just like general information. Um, you know, I, I would often tell my patients, like, I would, in my charting of the outpatients, I would record like how long it took them to finish a feed, what was the rate of transfer, like how many mils per minute kind of thing. But I never really had a way to contextualize like, is this good or bad? I'd be like, okay, so it's five. So that's a number I have. <laughs> I mean, that's all. So we found on average that the healthy term babies would drink milk at seven milliliters per minute which relative to what we know about preemies has already been published is a lot faster, which one would expect. So preemies pretty much, we look at like 1.5 and above is like very good. So, you know, the healthy term babies are doing much, much more than this. And that generally speaking, healthy term babies consume about half of the total amount of milk they're going to consume in a feed within the first five minutes. So really like they go go to town those first five minutes and then they might plug along a little bit after and they certainly take more, but it's much slower. So that was one really big finding that I liked clinically yeah. because I can use that as like a reference to start. Now, is this the end all be all? No, this was like a, a relatively small sample size of 30. Um, we certainly need to build on it, but I think in the absence prior to this, I didn't ever, there was never a value for it. So I think this is better than nothing as a start. Yeah. And then the next really, I think, compelling finding that I found in this is that 
when we looked at that EFS scale, so again, this is a categorical scale that rates a baby on a three-point scale. So do they have immature feeding? Is it emerging or is it mature? In many different components that we would look at for feeding assessments. We found that it was really common. I mean, you would assume, I guess, I won't portray this on you. I would assume that if I had a healthy term baby that was meeting functional needs, that they would get mature in all of these. That was that was kind of my assumption. And what I found is that they did get mature in a lot of these, but there was also a lot of the different domains that were we looked at that they a lot of the babies got immature. So for example, it was very common for the these babies to be able to breathe between swallows and to not turn blue during the feed, which one would hope would be the case if you're considering your baby healthy and not having issues. But we found it was actually really common for them to score the worst in the outcome that was milk escape. So babies pretty much always spilled some milk out of their mouth. Like this is just kind of a thing that they did at some point during the feed. And that actually the most interesting one for me is that they very frequently demonstrate compelling stress cues. This is what the scale calls it is compelling stress cues. So they um, were raising their eyebrows, they're pushing their hands up, kind of these kind of these nonverbal communication signs that we are trained into observe to, you know, respect the baby, you know, feeding. So, you know, I think that finding was really, really interesting for me because, you know, it made us sit and kind of scratch our head on like what we consider a stress cue versus what we consider communication outside of a stress communication. And so um, when looking at these videos, like a lot of times the babies would like splay their hands or something like that. It was right before they had a bowel movement when they were feeding. So like, were they necessarily stressed? I mean, I don't want to portray if that baby was stressed. Probably not though. They probably were just saying, hold on a second. I can't do two things at once. So that was communicating like, I need you to chill out and stop, but not necessarily saying like, I need you to stop feeding me altogether. Like, just like let this moment pass or the same thing for like a burp break kind of thing. So, you know, we would see that. And then, you know, oftentimes the first time the parents saw it, they would keep feeding through it. Um, and sometimes it wouldn't happen again. And so who knows what that was, but then other times it would. And that's typically when the parent would kind of hold back. So I found that really, really interesting. And I, again, as we collect more information and make light of this, I think it's really important to consider in the clinical context of like how to interpret these as just normal communication attempts. And the baby has to tell you somehow, right, <laughs> that they need you to pause. So keeping that in mind and not always like going to the extreme when you see those things. Yeah, this, this is so interesting, Caitlin. I think it, it twofold. I obviously I have a son with special needs that, you know, feeding was the reason he was in the NICU. And so even, you know, bringing him home, I swear to God, I would stand on my head to get this child to eat. But then he did all these crazy things too. And I just remember calling my mom friends like, is this normal? Oh yeah, my baby does that. Totally normal. Is is this normal? Uh, no, my baby's never done that. So like <laughs> deciphering, like what is, what are his characteristics versus what is typically developing? And, yeah. you know, it's interesting. I, I had a conversation with somebody that's on our team that just had a baby and she was saying the same thing. Like, I don't know what is considered normal and what's not. And she's like, why, you know, of course I, I, I'm well educated. I, I know that I should be looking for things in my baby that, you know, maybe would warrant a feeding eval or warrant early intervention, but I don't know what exactly I'm looking for and what's atypical. Like what's the threshold? Like yeah, how bad is right, that? Right, right. And yes. I, I remember that so much with my son too, is I think he was probably like 
three months at the time that I was like, okay, something is not right. Like, and it, and it ended up having bad reflux. Um, but yeah, it was like, okay, something it, like I finally hit my, like figuring him out long enough that okay, this, this does not seem to be okay. Like he seems right. to be distressed. He seems to be stressed. So totally. Well, and I think it like brings in, especially with infants is in all areas of dysphagia, you're getting things based on like patient or caregiver report, right? To some extent, and you're deciding how conservative or liberal you are based on what the functional impairments and the the concerns that they have are. So I think that is like really highlights for me in, in infants, especially is that you're relying on caregiver report for a lot of these things. And, and different caregivers have different thresholds of like how much they're willing to like tolerate or how much, you know, who, when they ask for, outside like counsel essentially and and to see things like I know for me I'm very much like eh you're bleeding let's see if it stops and maybe get stitches otherwise well it's just cake let's just hold off on the ER whereas somebody else would be like we're going we're calling an ambulance kind of thing yeah um so I think that that's for me I always struggle with when I have patients parents giving report because I don't doubt their perception of any part of what they're experiencing I think that's like that I don't doubt that I don't think they're making things up, but I think when you rely so heavily on parent report to guide your management, that's where it gets tricky because to me, it seems almost like we need some cut points of some sort to, to help make it. So we're making recommendations that aren't strictly based on like what a parent is driving to, you know, and I don't mean that in a bad way against parents. I hope it doesn't sound that way. But. Yeah, no. And, and I think that's exactly it. I, I think what was interesting with my son was there are some things that he would do a lot, you know, and, and I, I brought it up to the pediatrician. He's like, well, no, that's fine. Like babies will do that a few times during a feed. And I was like, well, no, but it seems like he does it like all the time. Yeah. He's like, okay, well then if he does it all the time, then that's, right. that's a thing. So I think yes. what is the scale between a little bit and a lot? Right. Right. <laughs> so, right. Well, and I think that like, to me, I don't know. My clinical practice is certainly always evolving, but I think at this point in clinical practice, I feel a lot of the times that if nothing else, I can be somebody to like hold that parent's hand and like walk them through that journey and say like, you know, I mean, I'm always very honest. We don't know what normal is in this situation or, you know, I can give you the information we have, but it seems like your baby's not having any functional impairments. Like weight gain is good. Respiratory status is good. And this is happening, but it doesn't seem like it's stressing them out tremendously, right? Like they seem like this isn't, they don't avoid feeding. They don't want to not feed because of it. So, you know, we can go conservative or liberal route, but like, let's, let's monitor. And like, then we do check-ins, like tons of virtual check-ins where I just check back. Let's check back next week. Let's check back in two weeks. Tell me how it's going. So I can really get a pulse of how this is going, having them track things. And kind of, I think that as a parent, well, you can appreciate uh, probably more than any is like they give you this baby to send home and like assume you know what you're doing. And I always felt like I knew more than most from working in pediatrics, but I certainly half the time I'm like, well, let's see what Google says, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, I don't know. So I think it's nice to not feel alone in that journey, Um, at least so you're out of your head so you can kind of just know that you're checking the boxes yeah. kind of thing. So yeah. the amount of times I Googled, like, yeah, I think we all, you know, we all would MD ourselves, like, is this yeah. normal? But like, my baby does this five times an hour. Is this normal? <laughs> yeah. You, Google will tell you an answer to anything. Yes. <laughs> tell you anything sleep related. That is the one thing that always makes me feel better. I'm like, 
Is it, is there a sleep regression at 6.5 months? There's a sleep regression every time for Google and it makes you feel better when you're up all night when Google says other people are also up. Right, right, right. right. Everyone that has a baby is awake right now. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. I'm not alone. Great. Yeah. Well, I love that, Caitlin. I, I, I love obviously how, you know, clinically relevant your work is and how just valuable this will be for, you know, babies of, atypical, but also just typically developing. So yeah, totally. Yeah. We're excited about it. I'm excited to continue on some more studies and, you know, really just dive in deeper. So we have some stronger cut points for that and look at like long-term functional outcomes, which I think will be cool because, you know, for example, in the cough study, we have six months worth of data so we can better understand, like at least in the first six months of life, the kids that coughed, you know, 85% of feeds seem to be more sick than the ones that didn't and things like that and kind of get better understandings of anecdotal stuff. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. So that was kind of the second big summer manuscript that we had. And then the third big one was we did a really cool study. I had some undergraduate students, Jenny and Greg, that came in and we, you know, I kind of gave them this project and they ran with it and I oversaw it. So I give them full credit on the execution of this, but really it came down to, uh, there's been mention in the research of like hydrostatic pressure and things like that in bottles. But I found that like when talking about it or I like reference hydrostatic pressure in notes that like most people didn't know what I was talking about, but they kind of knew the concept, but not fully. And so this study was total like simulation kind of based and just really like diving deep into like, what is hydrostatic pressure? So for anyone that's listening, who's not super familiar, that's totally fine. Hydrostatic pressure is just the pressure established in a bottle by the milk on it. So just like a deep sea diver goes down and the pressure gets bigger and bigger. And eventually that's why you have issues if you go down too fast. The same thing happens in bottles. And so the more pressure that's, you know, weighing down on the tip of the bottle nipple, the the theory is that the faster milk will flow, right? Because there's kind of pushing it down. So we did a bunch of experiments where we just tested different variables and how they impact hydrostatic pressure, not using infants. We just let flow and things like that. And so we looked um, at the angle of bottle inversion. So for example, feeding babies in sideline position is like a huge you know, thing that people are, are using across the board. There's not actually much research um, in that area at all. And certainly not a lot that's controlling for the different things that could cause potentially better feeding. And so one thing that, you know, I've always postulated and talked to other researchers and have thought too, is that when you're holding a baby in sideline position, you're holding the bottle completely horizontal so that there's not any pressure in that and milk is actually flowing slower. So if you hold the bottle in that same position and hold the baby upright, you could potentially achieve the same outcome. I don't know. No one has studied that. I'm just saying if that is the source, that might make a more naturalistic feeding experience for the parent because I think sometimes that can be a little funky to learn. So we looked at like the effect of position of the bottle and how much milk is in the bottle. You know, like I said, if you just go down five feet diving, that's not a ton of pressure on you. But if you go down like 50 feet, right, that's a lot of pressure relatively. I don't know. I'm not a diver. But um, so we did that. Um, and kind of looked at that impact. And then we also looked at how vents and bottles kind of influence that. So really just like diving into the physics of it, which was really cool because I love physics. And I got to, we brought in like one of the physicists here that was awesome. And I think he was really excited to like work on something that was clinical <laughs> in, in any regard. He's like, oh, this is really taking me out of like my typical thinking zone. So yeah. 
it was really fun to work on that. And so, yeah, what we found from that is that milk is going to flow from a bottle regardless of if an infant is sucking from it, right? If you invert a bottle, turn it upside down, milk drips out, and that is because hydrostatic pressure. So if you keep a bottle completely horizontal, it's not going to drip because there's no hydrostatic pressure, which I think everyone probably can appreciate. Generally speaking, that's not like profound news. But what we did demonstrate based on that when we built these experiments is that hydrostatic pressure decreases when you decrease the inversion. So if you have a bottle that's completely inverted and then you tilt it to maybe like half inverted, like say 45 degrees, that will have less pressure and flow slower than one that's completely inverted. And likewise, if you hold it completely horizontal, it flows even slower. So, you know, I think that is one component and the same thing for how much milk is in it. I'll add that before I kind of make my conclusion. So if you have a bottle that's completely filled up with milk and you have it just say partially inverted, that will have a faster flow rate because it has more hydrostatic pressure, higher weight of the liquid above it than a bottle that only has like an ounce of milk in it, say, because there's less weight on it. So I liked this study a lot for a Many reasons. One, I think it like very clearly outlines what is hydrostatic pressure so we can know like the things that are influencing milk flow rate. We talk about bottom nipples a lot, which are wonderful, but we have the ability to influence milk flow rate using other modalities, such as how much milk we put in the bottle, the how much we angle the bottle when we feed the baby to it. And those are really cool techniques because we can change those real time. And these are things that like Again, this isn't profound. I think this is stuff that clinicians are doing intuitively. They like will tilt the bottle further up or further down based on how the baby does. But I don't necessarily know that a lot of people can appreciate like the actual physics behind why it happens. And for me, I've always found that I'm somebody that does things if I understand why. And if you can't give me a reason why, like I'm very non-compliant patient, generally speaking. So I think this is helpful for like educating whether it's like the parents and not saying you have to go into hydrostatic pressure, but give them the explanation of why this, you know, works as far as flow rate. That is helpful for educating nurses that are doing feeds for babies and physicians. I think that's great. I think it's a cool opportunity to, Potentially, you know, I'll say clinically for me, I've had patients who have such profound impairments that even if we put them on like the Dr. Brown's ultra preemie nipple, they are still desatting throughout that feed. They're aspirating on a small study. And so it comes down to the team says, okay, maybe they need to be MPO for a little bit, which none of us want, right? And that is never like a desired thing. And so what I've tried in the past is I say, let's just fill up the bottle with like five mLs of milk or, you know, something really, really small. And see if we can, you know, make them make the milk flow rate slower that way. Um, so I've done things like that, which I found. And again, that needs to be studied. I didn't study that in a clinical scenario here, but I think that would be interesting because it gives you more options, which I think is powerful. And then lastly, like, I mean, we probably most people listening to this are um, in a country where they have access to different bottle nipples and things like that, that allow us to treat our babies. Um, a huge part of like my mission of, of research in clinical care is helping individuals in, in places that just were not born here, right? Or they, they weren't born in a place that has that as an option. Um, I do, you know, I, I've done, a, I spent a lot, a lot of time in different places like Mexico. I'll, I spend time there and do work there in uh, other countries where 
they don't have access to these things or they might have access to some of these bottle nipples, but they're so expensive. No one clinically would ever be able to use them um, just because they're not produced there. So I think this is a great option. I always, I always leave places like that feeling kind of of like a failure because I'm like, well, I came with all this great data that we have from the United States where we have access to this stuff, but you don't have access. So now you know that these are helpful, but you can't use them. And that's like horrible, right? So that, I think this study got me really excited about that too, because I'm like, this is something that anybody anywhere in the world can do to modify things to help make it easier for babies to eat. So so yeah, that was a really fun study for me from that regard. Yeah, I, I think that's so fascinating because I cannot even tell you the amount of bottle nipples I bought for my son. Like <laughs> slow flow, faster flow, like preemie, but faster flow, but older kid, but slower flow. Like totally. I, I, just, I remember at one point, like I was so frustrated. We were on vacation. I was so frustrated. And I think I probably spent just like a hundred bucks on Amazon and just ordered like yeah. every flow. And like, my husband was like, what are you doing? And I was like, I am just losing my mind. That's exactly trying to figure out like how to feed this kid. But mm-hmm. I think knowing, you know, this, yeah. I probably could have done more with what I had. Right. Didn't have to go, you know, get a whole entire collection. Yeah. But I mean, like your example speaks to like, I mean, truthfully, I can tell how bad a problem is when parents come in with like yes. a bag of bottles and nipples. Yeah. I mean, like that is like the truth. I don't think there that. was a, a oh, single brand that I didn't have or try. Yeah, yeah we're yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. I thought I'm like, this would be a great business if you had a way to like sterilize bottles and nipples so that p- parents could like try different ones, yes. you know? Yes. Because you spent, it, they're expensive. So much. I swear, like, if you looked at my like Amazon history feed from like my child's first three months, it, I'm not even kidding. It was probably 95% feeding oh, sure. bottles, nipples, anything to get this kid to eat. Like totally, I, totally. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a um, huge market. And, uh, you know, I think the bottle nipples that we have available now are wonderful and, and that's great. But I think that it's hard for consumers because yeah. certain companies do better than others in being transparent in like the fact, like, you know, we don't have added evidence for a lot of this stuff and like when it's needed and when it's not. So I, you know, that's a, that's a whole another area that I'm really interested in is like, you know, these arbitrary ages that they say for different bottle nipples and things that are somewhat arbitrary, I should say. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's a whole, whole kind of can of worms. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's, that's great. I'm so, <laughs> so glad you're studying this, Caitlin, because I think you'll help preserve the sanity of a lot of uh, frazzled moms. My goal, maternal <laughs> sanity. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I questionably achieve it for myself any day. I don't know if it's achieved. There's days I don't achieve it, but yeah. it's always my goal at the beginning of every morning. <laughs> Caitlin, maintain your sanity. <laughs> How can I preserve my sanity today? Yes. Yes, exactly. Totally. <laughs> So yeah, I think beside that, that was kind of like our big summer of writing, getting things out. Um, and then that made it so I, it paved the way for new studies moving forward, which is always really great. So, um, things that we have going now, one of the biggest endeavors I think that has been a labor of love is I do, I would say, yeah, I don't know, it kind of switches based on the year, but I do a lot of the research in these young babies. But then I have this kind of other area of research in spinal muscular atrophy. So that includes infants, but I really, I really am involved in SMA throughout the lifespan because this is something that they'll have forever. Um, and my interest in this really kind of started out of a clinical scenario. It was like one of the first patients I ever saw, um, I was consulted for a patient with spinal muscular atrophy and they needed a swallow study. 
and I was still a CF. I didn't even know what SMA is, which most people probably don't because it's a pretty rare disorder, but generally it's like ALS for babies. And so um, a parent will have a child that they think is completely healthy and then they'll notice, you know, they're not holding up their head. They're not meeting these general milestones. They take them in. They typically will get a PT eval or something. And somehow they end up in neuro because people are like, this is kind of a red flag. And they find out they have this disorder, which there's different severities. But the most severe type historically would lead to complete loss of all muscle control, specifically those controlling swallowing that would cause death by one to two years of life. So it was just completely devastating. And I remember when I was consulted on this baby and, you know, I think I was in fluoro when I got the consult. And so, and I knew they're coming down in a couple minutes. The referral was from pulmonology. So in a perfect world, yeah, would I have done like a full PubMed search on SMA and swallowing? I now know that wouldn't have really told me anything because no one had studied it much, but I did a Google search to find out what is SMA, is it progressive or not, and kind of get the gist. And I, and I just felt this, I'm so under-equipped to manage the care of this patient who this family just found out their child is inevitably not going to survive um, because I just found out about this disorder and no one has, like, there's nothing on swallowing other than it's impacted, right? Like, so this is a big issue. So Long story um, short, kind of the stars align like they typically do if you let them, I think. And um, I got asked to present on this topic and it kind of led me into doing a lot of research in this area. And so um, what we did is when I started this, this, they had just developed this new pharmaceutical that made it so these babies could survive, which is awesome, right? So like what a fun place to be. Like imagine seeing ALS patients now they all like... ALS is like not cured, but right. It's not going to progress any further once they get this medicine. So it was really, really cool. But all of these big pharma companies, no one had been concerned about swallowing because no one had been talking about it. It just hadn't been a thing because these babies would get put on palliative care. So what they were finding is these babies were surviving, but they were, a lot of them were still having really big swallowing problems and, and they were trying to make sense. So then it came down to a money thing. So pharma got really excited to like study swallowing. So it was kind of like the perfect storm um, when we all entered. And so what we did, it started out, I didn't have any funding. It really started out grassroots of like, I knew this patient, it kind of resonated with me and I couldn't shake it. And so I reached out to clinicians like all around the world and just said, if you have swallow studies that you've ever done on patients with SMA, I have no money I can offer you. Like I, I was just out of school. Like I had nothing to offer other than like a smile. Like, that's all I can give you. And like, you can be a co-author when eventually if this gets published, but asked if they had small studies of patients with SMA, if they could contribute them to this big repository we were developing. And we were going to analyze it to see like, what are the types of swallowing deficits? What should you expect when you do a swallow study on these patients? And how does it decline? And kind of things like that. And it really like, from that, I mean, the amount of clinicians that jumped on board at that, like I still, it was, it's, it's one of my favorite like babies of studies in that regard, because it just, for me, opened my eyes on how much clinicians want to be involved in research and they care about their patients. And it was just such a great opportunity to meet people because we ended up getting clinicians from, I think, 15 different children's hospitals around the world. Um, some only had a couple studies to contribute, but we said, whatever, the more the merrier, um, and got them involved, but it really escalated into a number of different grants that not only looked at the swallowing deficits in patients that didn't get treatment, but those that did. And now we have three approved pharmaceutical treatments. So now we're 
able to compare across those pharmaceuticals, you know, what are the differences in outcomes? And these are the big questions. So this study has been probably, I don't even know, maybe six years in the making, um, maybe more time flies. But we are just about finished with that. We've collected all the data. We have raters that have been like painstakingly analyzing this. Heather McGee, Keely McKelvey have been doing this a ton. Um, and then we have a group over here that we just started doing a kinematic analysis on it. And the first results of that should be coming out this fall at some point. So that's really, really exciting kind of area that we're, we're excited to get those out soon. And then I think kind of following up on that, start a new kind of follow up on a new line that we've been doing is developing outside of SMA, developing a, a novel, non-invasive method to evaluate swallowing integrity, sucking integrity in a very objective method without use of a swallow study or any fees or anything that's more on the invasive side. So yeah, we're, we're working on getting our second round of funding for that, which is exciting. Cool. I, I love that. And I, I think it's, it's always so interesting. Like you said, you know, you weren't sure if people would or, or if other SLPs would be able to be involved in the research. And I, I just remember with my son, I was so grateful whenever they would say, you know, oh, he has this really rare condition, but we do have this study of like 15 documented cases. And even though it was like so yeah. small, it was still just so like, oh my gosh, okay, there's other there's Okay, this is like what, you know, maybe to expect. So that's so awesome. I, I know there's, you know, probably tons of SLPs that would love to be involved in this, but it's, you know, time consuming. So thank you to those that. Oh my that gosh. Did yeah, I yeah. am forever indebted to them. They've been great. And now our great friends, right? We've been working on this for a while and they've been in it. And fortunately we've gotten funding now. So now they can get paid for their work, which always is a good feeling on mine. I don't like to like, I feel like I owe people things, but um, yeah, it's been good. I think, you know, this is, that study, whether or not you're in SMA or not, has been eye-opening for me. And, um, you know, we all need, we all appreciate there's a need for speech pathologists trained in medical speech kind of pathology areas, definitely in pediatrics. And I would say this experience has really opened my eyes to the fact that how desperate we are for that in neuromuscular, muscular for pediatrics, because in all of these neuromuscular I shouldn't say all, but the majority of neuromuscular clinics, they have a dedicated PT, they have a dedicated nutrition, you know, they have dedicated professionals, but the reoccurring theme that I hear from neurologists that like will ping nonstop. So like, we would love to have a dedicated speech pathologist to do swallowing assessments and speech assessments, but we just can't get one. Like ours don't know about this kind of stuff and things like that. So I think as we tie up this study, it's it's a huge desire I have to um, kind of carry this momentum forward and help train people in how to work in these neuromuscular clinics and these populations. Because I think once you're in, it's like any other population. Once you like dive in, you fall in love with it and you love being in this like little niche area, but it just takes somebody to kind of hold your hand to get into it. Awesome. Oh, I love your work, Caitlin. I could always chat with you for a so. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing all that and for things that are new and exciting coming up. Um, anything else? Anything else you want to mention or cover or? I mean, we could talk for hours, but we can save it for another podcast because people probably have gotten to their destination. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much, my friend. I always appreciate everything that you have to share. Sure thing is my pleasure. I hope everyone is doing well and hopefully look forward to seeing you at conferences in the, in person in the future. 
And that's our wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at teresarichard.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.